Today we're back with episode three of Raise Your Glass, a podcast celebrating the best local food and beverage culture Kansas City has to offer. Today we raise a glass to John McDonald, founder of Boulevard Brewing Company in Rebel Glass. We had a chance to sit down with John at his home on the west side. We learn about John's past and how it led him to start a brewery in a time when it was rare to start a craft brewery. John shares some stories about his first job, his time living in the brewery, and he even tells us which Boulevard beer is his favorite. In addition to beer, John has a passion for sustainability, and you also hear how Boulevard moved to being waste-free and why people thought he was crazy to start a glass recycling company. So John, uh, we recently went on a tour of the brewery and you led some folks through that were interested in glass recycling. Um, You talked a lot about working in your dad's cabinet shop before you founded the brewery. Uh, We know you did both for a while. You were a carpenter, you were brewing, and you were starting the business at the same time. Um, And that can't have been easy. So can you tell us when and how did you stop working on the carpenter shop and start focusing on the brewery by itself? Well, so my dad owned the building. He wasn't really, a, he didn't have anything to do with the carpenter shop. He actually was in the industrial rubber business. And oh, okay. He be a, to take it over for him because he wanted to retire. And I tried twice, once in the early 80s. I lasted about six months and quit. Mm-hmm. And then the second time, <laughs> in the late 80s, after I'd even started working on the idea of the brewery, I went back to work for him. And that, after about a year of being miserable as a rubber salesman, I said, Dad. Somehow, I can't see you doing that. Yeah. No. I said, Dad, this is your dream, not mine. And you know what? We'll be fine. Sell this damn thing. And so we did. It was great. Good. It actually uh, uh, took a lot of pressure off both of us. So right, yeah. Thing. And so he sold the business, but we kept the building. Okay. They didn't want it. Obviously, it was a kind of crappy little building. Mm-hmm. They wanted to move into Kind of grand, um, uh, you know, place. So, um, so anyway, I w- went back to work um, with Lydia's dad. Really? So, so for he, those listening, Lydia Gibson works for Ripple, and there's a long time connection there. It sounds right. like. So Greg and I were friends in college, and Greg's dad owned the office building on the plaza, and so I had his great gig doing all the office remodel. And I also worked on Joe's house. He had a big house in Mission Hills. And so between the office building, Joe's house, <coughs> and just little jobs that I would get, you know, I that's how I supported myself. Right. And um, and so, um, so I sort of was managing that. So I worked, and it was a really cushy job. Uh, we didn't work much actually. <laughs> we went in and drank coffee for an hour or two in the morning and they paid me great mm-hmm. and uh, and then we'd go to lunch and we usually have a two hour lunch we'd go with, with cocktails sometimes <laughs> and then we would come back and uh, work for a couple hours and then go home it was a great job and I kept thinking why do I want to why would this? you do yeah, something exactly. else right and my dad was like dude you're an idiot you don't want to be in business. It's just, you got to deal with all these employees and insurance is terrible. The government and taxes, all that stuff. But I really wanted to start the brewery and I just kept coming back to it. And I actually, I had a partner for a while and that didn't work out. And, and I tried to raise money once before, but then, uh, and then after about six months, I went, you know, I'm, I'm really going to do this thing. Mm-hmm. So I kind of regrouped and, 
you know, um, you know, I'm virtually a computer illiterate person. This is true. But I actually, <laughs> I actually back then got a computer and wrote to write my business. Plan. Sure. And a writer friend of mine, uh, Pete Bonzegazer, helped me a little bit with writing the business plan. It was probably terrible, but I still have a copy of this. It's quite oh, I want to see that. Yeah. Uh, but the business plan, and so I worked on this thing for a year, a couple of years, you know, because uh, breweries now, you know, there's one that opens every 24 hours, a couple of minutes probably mm-hmm, in the right. United States. But back then, it was not a, a mm-hmm. known thing. In fact, yeah, most right. people were like, you're what? You're going to start a brewery? You're an idiot. Right. You know? How can you so, ever compete? Yeah. So was it super hard to get funding then, I guess? It was. Yeah. It was super hard. Uh, ultimately, no bank would loan me any money. Sure. Uh, after, and I literally went to 30 or 40 of them. And um, so my dad actually agreed to be the bank in the beginning. So I raised about half the money from partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I raised, and then he lent me about half the money. Mm-hmm. And, and back then, interest rates were high. I think right, I right. paid 10% interest. Wow. wow. That yeah. So it wasn't a terrible thing for him either. Yeah. But, but still a big leap of faith. Yeah, it was. At and that rate. It was. And, you know, I think it's funny because uh, the one thing I really like, having been a carpenter and do, like, room additions and kitchen remodels mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, additions and things like that to people's houses, one of the things that really appealed to me about the beer business was at the end of the day, you're selling something that costs a buck and right. nobody complains. Right. I mean, you want to get paid. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Have the government makes you, the retailer by law has to pay, right. pay you. So you never, you know, and nobody complains about a buck, but right. when you hand some guy, a, you know, a bill for his room addition and it's $180,000, you know, it makes a grown man cry. So, you know, <laughs> True. You know, it's, True. it's like a big experience. <clears throat> right. Right. You know, I saw many of uh, relationships ruined because of the building project. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's stressful in a marriage. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's true. Yeah, really yeah. Okay. So for those at home, uh, we are actually sitting on John's porch right now. He lives in the West side, just near the brewery. I think a lot of people would assume that you're a pretty urban type of guy you know, based on what they know about you. Uh, but we know a little different. So we know we were raised pretty rural. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about your upbringing and what got you to Kansas City. You know, I was born uh, and raised in a small town in north central Kansas, a little town called Osborne. And my dad actually worked in the lumber business at a local, it was a lumber yard that had like 15 or 20 yards around Kansas and even into Colorado and Nebraska a little bit. And uh, I love the lumber business. I think that's one of the reasons I became, got into the carpentry business is I kind of grew up around uh, the mill shop and, and uh, you know, lumber and just loved the smell of it and just poison really liked it. And then, and then he, we actually, he quit that job and he took another job and went and really almost went bankrupt, you know, in this kind of prefab housing thing. They were actually just ahead of their time, but they went broke and uh, he was really miserable. And then um, a relative of ours who he had uh, known growing up and were good friends with, a guy named Mark Hoffman, uh, had, was diagnosed with you know cancer, gave him six months to live. And so my dad bought his 
business, which was the industrial rubber business, based out of Wichita, but they had a place in Topeka and Kansas City. And then he did really well with that. And they lived in Wichita, and so I lived one year in Wichita. I moved my senior year of high school, which, frankly, when I look back, is the most was super important because I I always tell people I'd be working at the Casey's in Osborne had we not moved to Wichita. You working know, at Casey's, be, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pumping gas, mm-hmm. or, you know, eating pizza. Yeah, eating pizza. <laughs> so it was really a good thing that we we moved, and then I, of course, went to KU. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right, and so um, most people also probably don't know that you were, I think you were an art, yeah, art I, major in college, right? So I was a pretty terrible student. I wasn't terrible, <laughs> terrible, because I did have a couple friends that I used to help them with things that they were really terrible, and um, but I wasn't a very good student. I just was bored with school mm-hmm. terribly. I just looked out the window most of the time and daydreamed about things. It clearly didn't matter. Uh, <laughs> it clearly yeah, didn't matter. It didn't matter. But I, um, so, so when I got out of school, I didn't really even know what I was going to do. And my mom had actually enrolled me at KU. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to Wichita. With or without your knowledge. Without my knowledge. <laughs> and she would ask me what I was going to do. And I just would say, well, I, I don't know. I'm going to figure something out. Or I'm going to get a job or whatever. And then a couple of weeks before school started, she said, well, do you want to go to college, you know? And so I said, yeah, I guess so. I guess I would do that. <laughs> so I loaded up my Volkswagen, 61 Volkswagen pickup and uh, went to KU and lived in uh, Oliver Hall and, and went to art school because I had gotten interested in ceramics. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. thought I was going to go into ceramics. That's what I was right. going to do when I went to college. And then, of course, when I got into art school, I decided, no, I don't really want to do that. And, and ultimately became a painting and printmaking major and loved it, loved college. I could, I didn't want to leave. I stayed five years. <laughs> and it was funny because I never had an advisor or anything. And, uh, and one of the things my sister had told me before I went to college, she said, you know, you're not very smart. And, uh, you know, the one thing, if you go to college, if you just go to class every day, don't ever miss a class, you'll probably get through. Sure. And you'll, was, get a, you'll get a C and maybe a B. Yeah. It was a great advice. Sure. Because I had all just these friends that were super smart. But after a while, you know, they started missing classes. Right. And before long, they'd missed so many that they were so far behind and then they dropped the class. Right. And, and, well, and I think that's good advice for life too. just showing up's half the battle. Yeah, you know? true. <laughs> true. can even show your face. That's, that's true. That's a good thing. But I really so. like, I love college. Stayed. You know, I was in Lawrence for five years. And then when I got out, I actually got a scholarship uh, from the painting and printmaking department. They had these Lockwood scholarships, which were really cool. They were kind of sexist. They Women couldn't get them. Why not? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that yeah, is no, crazy. I mean, in today's world, you know, all these things are changing. But right. It was some old guy that just gave all this money and said, no, women should probably be... <laughs> doing, doing other things. Doing yeah, other things. keeping the house. Yeah, and they should be artists. You know? <laughs> You're right. And um, so anyway, I won one of these Lockwood scholarships, and it, I think it paid out like twelve dollars or $13,000. And then I had saved money from working through college, and then I took that money and lived in South America for two years. I traveled all through Mexico, Central mm-hmm. America, South America, which was really uh, important. I think it, when I look back uh, at my life, it was... Um, 
so such a great experience because it taught me how people live in third world and you know kind of really super primitive places and i've always i think that's a big part of you know who i am today i i understand that Mm -hmm. and i learned that from this two-year experience in south america right and travel expands the mind right yeah and then um and then i came back and didn't know what i was going to do and rented a little apartment over by the art institute which was was kind of a <laughs> tough re-entry when i came back from mm-hmm. south america i don't know why but just being back in the united states and having this and i worked at the first job i took was uh at butternut bread it was a butternut bread factory kind of it's gone now it's over by st luke's hospital and i worked the night shift and my job was to turn the hot dog buns to go the right way they would come down the conveyor all these different oh, no. ways which you know sounds like a really easy job oh i said it wasn't <laughs> super hard yeah after a while you start screwing up and you turn the hot dog buns the wrong way I bet I mean. you turn the right way and you turn this way and, and they told us that they told us that when you got confused like that time for a break yeah well you just they just said walk down the conveyor and knock all of the hot dog buns off for like 10 or 15 feet of the conveyor oh so my you throw a couple hundred hot dog buns on the floor <laughs> and then you just would sort of regroup look staring at the empty conveyor and start over you know and so and how, by the end of the night, there'd just be this ginormous pile of mountain of <laughs> displaced buns. Yeah. And, and then the other things they made there were fantastic. They made those little brown and serve uh, dinner rolls. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, coming out of the oven. You know, they, they weren't really fully cooked. They were just like fantastic dough balls. And, you know, I, I ate tons Lots of Lots of carb loading. Did, in that. <laughs> did you balls. gain a lot of weight at that job? <laughs> yeah, you know, good thing I only lasted about four months. <laughs> and then it was one of the greatest jobs I ever quit. I hated it, really. Did yeah, you quit you know. in epic fashion? Is there anything to work? I did. It was kind of funny. <laughs> Actually, this old girlfriend of mine uh, came back from Europe, and we kind of got back together, and I just said, fuck it. <laughs> Let's. Qu- I'm gonna quit. I, I just quit the job. I walked in. Give him two weeks' notice. I just not quit. Got my last. That's everybody's job. dream. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Do that once. Yeah, and then we went and uh, rented an old cabin down in the Ozarks and stayed there for like just two weeks. Just hold up for a while. Just hold up and hung out and cooked. Oh, and that's great. Went swimming and had a great time. It was fantastic. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> funny. It's funny you talk about the conveyor because at Ripple we do have. You know, we do have somebody that is picking, you know, ceramic and porcelain and other things off a conveyor line all day. And I've worked that before. When you're staring at a conveyor coming at you all day, you start to get real disoriented. Yeah, it it, it's crazy. You. It messes with your brain so it bad. Is. It is. Yeah, and there's some pretty crazy stuff comes down that conveyor belt. Sure that, is. that is true. <laughs> yeah, there there is. Ceramic and porcelain is right. the best of it. Yeah, <laughs> so. right. Right. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So, um... On the tour, you talked to us a little bit about how you had to live in the brewery for a while. Can you tell us about that I and did, that experience? Actually, so I, uh, so I had my cabinet shop there, and I it was a big room. It was the old boiler room for the Santa Fe. It was the laundry. The building was originally built in the early 1900s as the uh, laundry facility for the Santa Fe Railroad, and so they unload all the sheets from the sleeping cars and all the tablecloths and napkins and they would actually bring them over on train cars and uh, unload it 
in the back of the building, and then they had this big boiler to heat water to, to do all this laundry, right? And so, uh, anyway, the boiler room was where my shop was, and it had really probably 25, 30 foot ceilings because it had these two ginormous boilers in there one time and a big smokestack, which is, you know, iconic mm -hmm. to the brewery now. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I decided to put a floor in and separate it. And so I did that. And at first I just was going to store stuff up there. And then I went, oh, you know, I think I could live up there. And so then I eventually built an apartment up there and had a studio, painting right. studio up there for a while. And, uh, and yeah, just moved in and lived there. Weren't and, you married at the time? Uh, I was not married, but Ann and I were together. Right. You know, mm. so, so, um, and then we, uh, we moved up here for a while and we lived in this little house, but it was too small. And that's actually when I worked for my dad. Mm -hmm. And that was before I, the, the apartment, I was building the apartment down there. So we lived up here and then we eventually uh, moved in to that apartment above the brewery. And it was tough. It was rough down there. <laughs> so people didn't know anybody lived there, right? And so there's all this crazy stuff going on. Down on the boulevard. You know, people having yeah. sex. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I had this... Just that, outside? Had, just outside in cars, you know. And then when Anna and I were living there, it was kind of kind of scary because you were living there. It was kind of rough down there. Yeah. And, but we could park inside the building with sure. an electric door so we could come in. And, and I had my wood shop downstairs, but... This one night, it was late at night, right? And these guys come up and they're drinking. They're out of their car. They're drinking beer on the hood of their car. They're sitting around. You know, it was a nice summer night, right? And our bedroom was right above where they were. <laughs> and it was kind of irritating. It went on and on. And Anne's like, this is scary. You know, I think these guys are really scary. And she was like, she was like, they wanted me to call the police. And I said, well, you know, they're really not doing anything. They're just drinking beer. And hanging out. Harmless and, for now. Yeah, right? It seemed like a big deal, but it was starting to piss me off. And finally, after about a half an hour listening to this shit, I just open up the window and I go, <laughs> hey, dudes, can you move your party someplace else? They were like, oh, yes, sir. Like, oh, oh, yes, we will. They were just out having a you know, no good time. There. And they had no idea. Yeah. And I startled them so much. They were like apologetic, got in their car, drove away. <laughs> it was like a big deal. But uh, anyway. <clears throat> One thing I love about Boulevard that is not, I don't think it's promoted as much as it should be, is that it's a waste-free facility. And so can you talk about how that came around, inspiration for doing it, challenges for doing that? You know, I agree. I don't think we've done a good job yeah. of tooting that horn. But then we're not real big horn, horn tutors, tutors anyway. You yeah, are. It's off brand to and toot the so, horn. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but... but um, yeah, I'm really proud of, I, and it goes way back to the early days of the brewery. And, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again, but I, I think one of the things that drives me and the reason for Ripple and, you know, I just hate waste. I hate, like I'm constantly digging aluminum cans out of the, like down at the farm, these guys show up and throw their aluminum cans in the trash. And, you know, I'm just constantly, I don't know, it just seems like this stuff has value and you should shouldn't just dump it all in the trash right and um so what was the question again about about boulevard oh, going yeah. to so i think it sort of as the brewery started to grow uh because i was always kind of a recycler i was always interested in this idea that we should be recycling mm -hmm. and then which led me and i 
dutifully, even before the brewery, took my recycling to one of the city drop-offs, mm-hmm. you know, where you had to sort everything and you put it around. And that was like a monthly, you know, I'd load it up and take it in my pickup. And, It'd take an hour or two to do it, but I always did it. And then as time went on, those became harder to get to. Even they, you know, they had restricted hours. And I remember I had kids at this point, you know, in the early days of the brewery. And I remember at one point I just went, I don't even have time for this anymore, you know. And I kind of quit doing it. But then I think we did some a project with bridging the gap um, about trying to find waste streams it's actually when i met stacia actually right and, and for those uh, listening stacia was ripple's first employee so right yep exactly and uh, so i met stacia and and bridging the gap bob man and all those people and you know so i learned a little bit more about recycling at that point and we always we identified early on that glass was a big issue right and we sort of knew that uh, glass had been thrown out of the of the single stream uh, by Ronnie Deffenbaugh right. for practical reasons. And uh, what I think is hilarious is actually he was ahead of his time. I think He sure was. In a lot yeah. of ways. And he didn't do it for recycling reasons. He did it because for all the reasons that probably shouldn't be in that stream, is it broke, it ruined his equipment. He just was pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm going to get paid anyway. Sure. Because if, if they throw it in the trash, I own the landfill. So what do I get? Right. I'm getting you know, it on both sides. Get, yeah, sure. Either way. So... And that's one of the things, of course, that allowed Ripple to start up, or mm-hmm. the original vision so for Ripple. Finding that you didn't have options at the brewery for recycling and right. glass. Right, we and... knew we were creating, I mean, literally by that point, it was truckloads of glass every day mm-hmm. that we were mostly selling locally and sure. regionally, mm-hmm. and we knew that all that glass was just going to the landfill, mm-hmm. going to the dump. And so I think that was really something that led Mike and I to, you know, start Ripple, and so without Ripple, the brewery could never be, um, you know, land uh, zero landfill. Right. And I think the brewery, I'm not sure of this, but I do think we probably were the first brewery to mm-hmm. be zero landfill. Mm-hmm. Sierra Nevada, both Sierra Nevada <coughs> and New Belgium have very robust recycling. Sure. They even have sustainability teams. They're very serious about they it. They do. Yeah. Neither of them had access to... Uh, uh, the incinerator, a uh, what do you call it? Uh, the, yeah, the waste to energy, the waste to energy thing. Right. And recently, you know, Coors now who touts at their zero landfill, they actually spent a ton of money shipping that that material mm-hmm. to a waste energy thing in Oklahoma. Right. They pay. They load it on train cars and send it to Oklahoma so right. that they can say they're say they're zero, waste energy. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. zero landfill. So just by having that allowed us to be be a zero landfill right because there are any any business that's trying to go zero landfill there's always those odds and ends that truly aren't recyclable there's either not a market for it nobody wants it it has no value there's just issues there and we have that basket at the brewery right you know you know there's the compost the plastic the Mm -hmm. glass all these different things but then there's the don't know what the hell it is. Right. You know, what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's usually like plastic ink pens. And, sure. And we, so somebody at the brewery sorts through all that. Really? Strips the metal out, wow. you know. Wow, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, takes, goes through that and, and figures out what's going to go to waste energy and what can be recycled. Sure. So, and that's, that's right. a lot of the issue that 
those items have they're made of many different materials a lot of times mm-hmm. you know they're made of plastic right. and metal and whatever it might be so right. it's hard to recycle them that way right and i think that's one of the things that i do like about glass is glass is glass sure right it's just glass and it's always been the same in fact when you go to a glass plant and see beer bottles being made it's almost the same thing that you would have seen a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. They have some technology that's new, but really it's a pretty grim, I mean, it's a guy standing in mm-hmm. front of these really hot machines with these gobs of glass, right. molten glass going down into a mold. And it's, re- I don't know if you guys have ever seen one. Mm-hmm. I have seen a very you? small one. Yeah, yeah. I've just seen. Um, we should do that. Yeah. Do a but ripple filter it, sometime and take. It really city. is a very simple process, though. I was shocked yeah. mm-hmm. at how simple it was. Yeah, but, but it's hot. It's incredibly hot. Yeah, it's incredibly hot. It's, it's miserably hot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go ahead and say yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I visited one that was not um, didn't have any temperature control in it, well, and it was did. in the summer. Yeah, so you add the summer heat yeah. plus the oh, furnace yeah. temperature, and I was just sweating buckets. You know, yeah. it was it oh, was it's, awful. It's not fun. <laughs> no, it's not fun at all. Um, so moving on to that and focusing really just on ripple there, um, what excites you the most about what we've done with ripple over the past almost nine years? You know, ripple is, uh, you know, I think ever since, you know, Mike and I kind of hatched the idea of it and then we got Jeff on board to help us with it, you know, we just, I think we learned enough about the industry that, and we knew that glass wasn't being recycled in Kansas City. So I think, you know, the fact that we have got it up and got it going, uh, as you know, it's not it's not very profitable. No, it sure really, isn't. It's uh, a tough thing. It's a labor of love is what it is. It you is. Know? But, you know, hopefully we, I think eventually we'll make it work. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, I think if you work at it long enough, we'll figure out the right combination of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that the world... Well, I think the U.S. is just so behind in recycling. And I think all of our trips to Europe over the last 30 years, buying brewing equipment and seeing this, how glass is handled in most, in Germany and and France and and helped us to sort of design, I think, a better model for glass recycling in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think the two ways that we recycle glass, one being... Uh, single stream where glass is uh, all thrown into one big uh, thing isn't ideal. It can work, but it's not an ideal solution because of the 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 mixed mixing and the trashy or what do you call it mix of the contamination, contamination yeah. of yeah, so, all of the materials. You know, so the glass. You know, when it goes through a processing facility, so anything you put at your curb. And the recycling bin goes to a processing facility because they need to sort the cardboard out, put it with the cardboard, sort paper out, put it with the paper, and then they go on and sell it to markets so it can actually be recycled. You know, glass is the one item that really seems to not behave well in that environment. You know, it breaks, it messes everything up, it messes the equipment up. I agree. Um, And then usually what we see at Ripple, what comes out of the end of that process is a very, very dirty mix of glass. You wouldn't even hardly call it glass. It's glass and other things. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we don't have glass included at curbside in Kansas City. And like you said earlier, I think we're a little bit ahead of the curve because we have seen cities really looking at the economics right. and the viability of keeping glass in a curbside mix nationwide and starting to pull it 
out of the accepted materials list. We're starting to see it happen. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the other side of it is, of course, as as we know, the the fact that Chinese, the fact that Chinese took so much of our recycled material, not glass, of course. Right. Plastics and other things. Plastics and cardboard and all those other things. And now they're like, I don't want that anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's created this real mess here in the U.S. because, and I think, so I think a lot of municipalities, a lot of parts of the country are starting to look at how should we do it. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the fact that this is tough right now in the United States and recycling is not going the right direction. Mm -hmm. I think it gives us a chance to look at what we've been doing and change it to what we should be doing. Right. Agree. And I think glass is a big part of that. And so I think Ripple, that's what we stand for in a Mm -hmm. way is let's, figure out the right ways to recycle glass right and make it a really usable commodity because i always say that um you know if we can just get it it's a weird business model in the Mm -hmm. beer industry you know we got to get more consumers and we make more beer and we got to get more consumers the reality is is if we could get all of the glass the glass producers would buy it from us sure We just there's, have to get there's it. There's a lot they of need. Endless demand for recycled glass. Yeah. It mm-hmm. saves them energy. It you know, makes their furnaces last longer. Mm-hmm. There's just all kinds of good reasons right. for them to use it. And right. that's, that's kind of, you know, I think most people have the idea that um, most of the glass that gets recycled here goes to be made onto new beer bottles, which is true. Um, there are a lot there. But then, as you mentioned, you know, the need for the recycled glass um, in other areas. And Owens Corning is one of our biggest um and markets that we work with. And um, I don't know if you elaborate on that, just how we got kind of connected with them. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. So it's real interesting. There was a guy named um, Jeff Becker, who was the uh, head, he was the head of the Beer Institute. He was the executive director of the Beer Institute, which is a beer uh, organization based out of Washington that really back in the day used to mainly represent three big brewers that's and but then it was his idea he told the big brewers you guys are missing it because you got all these little brewers that can help you with your lobbying and they're locally on the ground you should let them be part of the organization this guy was a great guy uh anyway uh jeff i got to know him fairly well because he was kind of an advocate of small brewers and so i got to know him pretty well and I told him about what we were doing you know early on and he was like that's great I think we can get the beer institute to even help you you know Mm -hmm. uh unfortunately and so Jeff's brother worked for Owens Corning oh okay and he called me up one day and he said hey John um my brother is being transferred to Kansas City would you give him a tour of the brewery? He's interested in going on a tour of the brewery. So I gave him a tour of the brewery, and it was right when we were starting Ripple, working on, we were on planning it. Mm-hmm. And he was the one, and we had called Owens Corning several times and not gotten mm-hmm. to the right person. We are an enormous company. Yeah. But, but when we met him, he had a fairly high job mm-hmm. at Owens Corning, and I think it's still there. Mm-hmm. And he got us right to the top, t- talking to the right people. And that's really how Ripple got started they were that's how we connected with our first customer okay and uh, this is a it, interesting about jeff though <clears throat> so this guy was most one of the most charismatic handsome dudes <laughs> i mean really he uh he just was the nicest guy 
And he was super smart, and he'd sort of been in law. He'd been a lobbyist his, pretty much his whole life. He charming. Charming. Yeah. Yes. Just charming. And um, so, uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen this movie before. It's, it's, it's called Thank You for no- Not Smoking. Not smoking. Yeah. 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 About the so tobacco is, lobby. That <laughs> story was written about Jeff Becker. No kidding. Jeff really? Becker was the person. So, Jeff had... He had on his desk the plaque that said, thank you for smoking. Oh, on his wow. Desk. And Jeff, because he had been a lobbyist for the cigarette uh, people for a while. I think, I think that's correct. I'm not positive. <laughs> and then he went to beer. But he, right. but he literally in his early 50s died of lung cancer. And, I mean, it was so sad. He had, and so... Uh, right when we were starting Ripple, he called me and said that he was, um, his daughter was looking at KU mm-hmm. to go to college. And that, um, so this was seven or like 10 years ago, eight or nine years ago now. And he asked me if I would give him a tour of the brewery. Mm-hmm. And it was a Sunday. And we spent the whole day together. We went to lunch. His wife and daughter had gone to KU. And we spent the whole day together. And he had already had cancer, but thought he was going to kick it. He's still smoking cigarettes. Still smoking cigarettes. And he, uh, like, died three months later. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It was a terrible story. But he, he was such a cool guy. And and really, that whole BIOP, the B, B, uh, Brewers Institute, has not been the same since he left. Sure. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it was a total, he was a really cool dude. Right. Yeah. But, but his brother was the connection to OC okay. that started it. And I wish he was still around because I think he would have totally helped us get the beer, mm-hmm. you know, these beer people on board mm-hmm. with doing Ripple because I think there's a connection. Right. You know, uh, so I think that the companies, we need to figure out a way, just like Boulevard has helped, mm-hmm. it's helped Boulevard sell beer in Kansas City because of its connection to ripple we need to get the rest of the brands that package in glass to help us create a robust um recycling uh component Mm -hmm. you know and i think that that is something we want to try to do right i agree glasses um in programs nationwide as you mentioned recycling it's struggling because all, a lot of the overseas markets aren't taking our plastics and other things anymore. But glass historically has struggled, period. You know, it, it's always been tough to recycle. Uh, the programs will start and stop. We see a lot of issues there. And so the concept of extended producer responsibility or EPR is something that we're hearing a lot about. And Boulevard, I think, with Ripple was on the forefront of that as, as far as glass is concerned. But I agree with you. There's a lot of room to get especially the bigger craft brewers involved. And I think the programs mean a little bit more yeah. when they're not pushed from a city or they're not pushed, you know, they're, they're really a community project. I would project. Like to see the whole liquor industry, mm-hmm. both, you know, the wine industry, you know, the wine, uh, you know, the hard spirit and beer, we all are the big users of glass. Mm-hmm. And so I think to somehow figure out how to do that. And, you know, I, <clears throat> you know, I've always had a little bit of a problem with, uh, deposits sure. and it, it it is the best way to get glass back 
But even deposit state glass is going down also for a lot of different reasons. And I think a, and I think one of the problems is a nickel or a dime is almost too much. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem can be solved for less money. You know, maybe a two cents or two and a half cents or three cents. And I think if the the liquor industry, the beer industry, the glass people put their heads together and figure out how to solve this problem at a reasonable price, mm -hmm. you know, to whether it's passed on to the consumer or it's a combination of the consumer, maybe, maybe the consumer pays two cents and the uh, uh, brewers and, and brands pay two cents. Right. And they, that solves the they problem. They buy into it. Yeah, they buy into it because I think right now they don't buy into sure. it. They fight they it. And they fight it, I think, because of it's cumbersome mm -hmm. and it's not working. Right. And people, let's be frank, people, most people today won't. A nickel isn't enough for them to go stand in line at a redemption center. Mm -hmm. So how do we solve these things? And, right. Mm -hmm. And those are what I think Ripple is really about. Right. And the, it really is. We, um, most people probably don't know that Ripple <clears throat> works with communities outside of Kansas City. So we're working in an eight-state range. Um, cities, you know, Omaha down to Little Rock. So they're collecting glass in a lot of different ways and then shipping it here by the truckload. Uh, we do work a lot in Iowa where there is an active bottle deposit law. So that's right. what John's been talking about. There's a five cent deposit. Um, and there's a lot of issues around that program, just the efficiency of it. Um, so much so that it's under, under fire right now in legislature. Uh, but the issue in it, you know, in my mind, the biggest issue there is our goals to recycle, and they're doing better than we are, certainly, or most states are. They're cool. getting 70% plus of the containers returned for recycling, which is wonderful. So, you know, you're right. There's some. There has to be some sort of a hybrid solution there yeah, to I keep these programs intact. We do. It, it needs to, to work. So, Michelle, you know this better than I do. How, how many communities do we have that, that we, work with Ripple? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we... We should mention, we of course work with the Kansas City metro area, and we have 100 free drop-off containers throughout what we consider the metropolitan area. Uh, and then we have now 94 communities outside of Kansas City that are collecting 94. glass for wow. us. Yes. That's so cool. I remember so, you said 65 or something the last time I remember. Uh-huh, yeah. You guys have been working. <laughs> we have been working. Uh, and I think when we, uh, when I first came into ripple i think we had 30 or 40 you know five years ago mm -hmm. so we've doubled in five years and we keep keep working with these communities to you know help them roll out programs a lot of them collect glass just like we do uh, they have free drop-off centers we have some that collected at the curb as a separate material which is really great some work with bars so there's a lot of variation there but yep we're yeah. up to 94 now so that's cool it's good yeah and i'm really excited about our commercial program that i am too we're, we're kicking off i think that's gonna Right, really we're help us then... we're one month into it as of this week, yeah. <laughs> so we're learning a lot of lessons. We have about thirty bars and restaurants on that first first route that we're picking up glass from them every week. Good. So cool. it's gone pretty well. Yeah, yeah we need to get out and get more. Yeah, but I guess we have to kind of test it. Yes, we. There's a lot of lessons to running. be learned. Yeah, yeah. We, before we run, it hasn't been without hiccups. <laughs> that's for sure. But one of my favorite moments in the beer business was actually when we went, it was quite a while ago, and it was one of my first trips to Belgium, 
and we went to celebrate uh, my brother-in-law's 40th birthday, Jerry. And we went to all these cool breweries. And one of the breweries I went to for the first time on that trip was West Leitrim, mm -hmm. which is one of the smallest of the monastery breweries. And you can't get a tour of the brewery, but they have this thing. So you're driving down the country, and then there's the monastery over there and all the vegetable patches and fruit trees and stuff. And, and it's a pretty small order. And this beer is legendary. And so, so the place they serve it, so you pull into this thing across from the thing, and it's like you pull in this ginormous parking lots, and in the middle is this fairly sizable structure. Not really a beautiful building or anything, but it's kind of this building. And I, we got there early. They opened like at 10 in the morning. We got there right at 10, and I was like, there was no cars in the parking lot. And we pulled in and we go in and it's kind of weird. And, and I remember going into the bathroom and I was like, oh my God. I mean, there were like a hundred urinals lining the wall. And I was like, wow, why get a lot of people here <laughs> yeah. to use all these urinals. You know? <laughs> and so we go out and sit. It's a beautiful day. And all you can get is like a cheese sandwich and a ham sandwich and drink these beers. And so Jerry and I, we started out and they make, I think three beers. They make like a a six. They just put. They don't even put a label on the bottles. They just have a crown that identifies. No the, name. No name. It's just a brown glass bottle, no label. And on the top, they put a crown, and it's either a, a six. I think it's a six, eight, or a twelve. And that has to do kind of with the strength of oh, the beer. Yeah. Okay. So the six is a lower alcohol. The eight's a little higher, and then twelve. Is, 12. Yeah, get you drunk. And yeah. um, so Jerry and I, it was just fantastic. And, and so we sat out at this beautiful table, and we were like the only people there in the beginning. And our plan was is to drink a six, an eight, a twelve, and then go twelve, eight, six. <laughs> <laughs> that was our plan. And then so our six wives, beers. yeah, and then Ann and Laura Damn were going to drive us back to the hotel. Probably a wise <laughs> yeah, decision. Yeah. And so, but anyway, it was just such a wonderful day. And and then after a while, like tractors pulled up. Guys got off their tractor, parked it in the parking lot, came in, started drinking beer. And this was like a Just Sunday. after a day of work? It was like a weekend. I think this was a Sunday, maybe. Just and then after a while, a, a bunch of bikers <laughs> showed up. A bunch of bikers showed up. And I'll tell you, by noon, there were 500 people there. And they needed those urinals. And, and they needed those urinals. And, <laughs> and I don't know. It just was such a perfect day. And I think we didn't get all the... So we, was it the beer or was it the that's experience? Yeah. Well, the beer is really good, but I, I think it was it was both. Right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and that's sort of why. But that was that beer is legendary. I mean, I think a few years ago they needed some money for the monastery. And they shipped a container of this beer to the United States... And they sold it for like some crazy money, really? $70 a six pack. Oh, wow. Like the Pappy Van yeah. Winkle of beer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they definitely done a good job of keeping the beer, you know, as a, you know, has, because of scarcity, mm -hmm. it has very, and in a, in a retailers, you can buy it in retail stores in Belgium, but the retailer, they have no distribution system. Mm -hmm. So the retailer has to drive. Ah. 
to the oh, wow. to the uh, monastery to get his beer, and they they have like a two case minimum uh, maximum or something, so you can only get two cases. Hmm. And so what are they selling it for in retail then? To, it's a lot. to drive it's, out and come get in. They sell yep. it for quite a bit, and you have to bring back your empty bottles. Okay, so <laughs> they won't give you. Mm-hmm. They won't give you a case unless you bring back the empties. Right. Sure. It's a perfect loop. It's, it yeah, is. it is a perfect loop. And then they wash the bottles and refill mm-hmm. them. That's how it... And you see so that a lot still over in Europe. Right? In Europe, but, you know, for example, Duval, they, they... I can't remember what the percentage they... But they fill all returnable bottles, but they only get like 30% of them back. Mm-hmm. Because okay. they're shipping sure. them so far in sure. so many different places. The wider your distribution, the harder right. it is. And we get that question a lot about right. Ripple. Well, why didn't Boulevard just go to reusable bottles? Yeah. It works. It can work if your distribution is real tight. It I can. Think. And I read recently that there's some breweries somewhere. Went Minnesota. Together. Was it right? Minnesota? Mm-hmm. That they went together to do a returnable bottle deal, and then maybe they went together to have a bottle washer. Mm-hmm. Think, they did. Which is yep. kind of interesting. Idea. It is. An, it's an expensive piece of equipment, so it it's is. a good idea. Oh yeah, I mean, as a brewer, it's like if I had to put a bottle washer in my brewery, I wouldn't have a brewery. <laughs> yeah. Because they are. If you've ever that seen expensive. one, they are. You know, steam belching, mm-hmm. yeah. chemical using. Yes nasty ass I mean think about it they gotta get all the cigarettes and right. mice yeah. out of those bottles I can't imagine yeah that's <laughs> gross and we should all love Chateau Milk for that reason it's yeah. not fun right no. it's not fun to package in returnable glass yeah. and wash the bottles out it's a that's a labor of love for yeah. sure so we know that or we've talked a little bit about how glass recycling business is very different than the beer business and we know that you know, I've been at Ripple for six years we've been in business for nine uh, we can make a profit, but we don't always. And, you know, we're out to do different things than just be profitable, obviously. Um, did people think you were nuts for starting Ripple? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, but that's sort of my trademark. Right? <laughs> yep. Started the brewery. Yeah. People thought I was nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And True. I we're free before. There, yeah. So then Ripple, I don't know. And Mike and I went back and forth for a long time. We we really worked on it. When you say nine years, I'm mean, yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah. It has been nine years. But I swear it was five years at least before that. Before that, sure. Where, right. While we kept coming, you know, talking about it and coming back to it. And then we're going, oh my gosh, it's such a leap to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And then we finally, you know, uh, I think, you know, I actually have to say that when Jeff Crumb came on board, Jeff's a chop, chop dude. Mm-hmm. And uh, he helped us. Without Jeff, we wouldn't have right. been able to push it over the line right and for, and so, for those listening jeff is the former cfo for boulevard he's the current ceo yeah. and he was one of the founding members for ripple as Absolutely. well mm-hmm. yeah jeff's a brilliant business guy and uh and really uh i think he also believes in ripple he does but he's mm-hmm. pretty busy he's a, yeah. he's got a yeah. couple things on his hand yeah. these days yeah. <laughs> sure okay um <laughs> okay what as far as a Boulevard beer, what is the favorite name that you all ever came up with? Oh my gosh. Um, I always, you know, one of my favorite, the beer didn't do well and it's gone now. 
But one of my favorite labels mm -hmm. and names for our beers was the Two Jokers. <laughs> that was yeah. cool. Yeah. That. We did. I just yeah. loved the way it was kind of like a double image. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And yeah. uh, it was just such a gorgeous label. And I, that's one of the brands mm -hmm. that I always liked. Mm -hmm. um, and I was always a fan of Tenpenny was another one mm -hmm. that I actually named. And I always liked that name. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with some of those names? Well, Tenpenny, well... Lots of different ways. I mean, Ten Penny was kind of a read on um, English. I wanted to make a low alcohol beer, mm -hmm. and this is something I really still want the brewery to do. And I think we're starting to do some really interesting things. And this is coming. I've been saying that for ten years. <laughs> it is coming. I think the idea that beer. Um, I like this idea that beer could be really low in alcohol, mm -hmm. like two and a half percent alcohol way below even like a three, two or something, because a lot of times when you're out at ball game or you're out with people, sure. you want to be sociable right. and you don't want to have too much alcohol. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you wanna, also need to hydrate a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You need to hydrate. And, and so I, I really like this idea of low alcohol beers. And I had this idea back in the early nineties and it was kind of when drunk driving laws were getting tougher and everything. So I came up with this idea that we were going to make a beer and I was kind of into, um, milds english milds mm -hmm. but english milds are typically sweet they are they were big beers for like uh, coal miner miners and stuff mm -hmm. and they were low alcohol but they were always sweet and i really like sweet overly sweet beer i was mm -hmm. kind of cloying and so we made it more like a little baby pale ale so it was hoppy but it was 2.7 percent alcohol <laughs> and at first the beer did pretty good until people realized it had low alcohol <laughs> they liked how it tasted and then they were like i'll never drink that again i'm being cheated right. you know because yeah. i think that was what people thought sure 25 years ago right. but today now that people have had their belly full of 10 and 12 and 14 right. percent alcohol beers they kind of are like well you know it wouldn't be bad you know I'd, be yeah. yeah you know if i'm puking on my shoes and I get so drunk, I don't get the girl at the end of the night. I mean, right. But like where's maybe, the fun uh, in that, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I find that a lot of times when I go to the beer hall, I'm I'm attracted to the higher alcohol content beers. And I like trying the test beers and all those things, which tend to be higher alcohol all the time. And sometimes when I leave, I'm like, oh, boy, you know, I did that. Mm -hmm. Two or three beers mm -hmm. in is enough. It's, right. it's enough. So it that makes sense. So I, I like this idea. And I think, you know, um, I think a lot of breweries are kind of working on mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does it does that alter the calorie content at all? Is there a health angle to it? It does actually. You know, uh, it's real interesting. There's a a beer that Dogfish Head makes now, and you know, a brewer can't say beer is good for you. I mean, that's right. like off sure. limits. You can't right. say that. And but uh, they made some kind of beer. I can't remember what was in it exactly, but it was kind of had health benefits. Mm -hmm. Can't remember. Maybe CD. You know the. CBDs or oh it did uh, okay something that's a little yeah, funky yeah but anyway somebody else like the New York Times or something said this beer is actually good for you which they're well within their right to right. say and they can say yeah but the brewer can't say it so sure. it kind of worked and this beer is real popular but I think those kinds of beers have a lot of opportunity a lot of potential mm -hmm. and we're starting to see I mean Boulevard's definitely working on it but you know, even outside of just the beer, beer world, you know, uh, all 
all kinds of stuff we're working on. Okay. So one so thing that right. you get, it, yeah, this is a top secret. One thing that always surprised me is that you love a good glass of rosé. I think that might surprise people a little. I do. I actually love wine. <laughs> I used to drink almost all beer. Right. For years. But then when you work in a brewery all day, every day for 15 or 20 years sure. and you smell it all day, every day. And you, you know, it's people always, I love to cook also. You know, we've talked right. about that before. And people go, why don't you open a restaurant? And I'm like, that would be terrible because. And I stop loving to cook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when when it becomes work, it's different. And it's different. The beer world is a little like that for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so, so uh, many years ago when I got home at night, I didn't reach for beer. Right. I would reach for wine. And so I really love wine. And I, you know, I like all kinds of things like that. Right. You know. Scotch, too. I like scotch. <laughs> I don't discriminate when it comes to drinking. Mm -hmm. You're equal opportunity drinker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, who's the most famous person you have in your phone? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> We've moved into the weird question. Yeah. <laughs> Who is the most famous person I have? Sarah yesterday said that you were her most famous like, person. John, John's my most famous <laughs> person. I've got you and I've got Jeremy Guthrie. I worked with him on that project for a little bit. Yeah. But that's it. <laughs> as exciting as I get. Um, you know, I think of a lot of brewery people that I know that I really respect. Like yeah. uh, uh, um, Ken from Sierra Nevada. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, he's a, you know, a figure. Yeah, you know. he's one of my favorite people. And really? I really look up to him. And what I like about him, from everything I've read, I've never met him. He's very uh, principled. He sure. does things because he wants to and because it's the right thing. Right. You know, it's not it's right. not all about the business. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's great. And uh, there's a lot of people, really good people in the beer industry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. San Calgioni. He is the owner of Dogfish Head. And he's oh, a okay. Really, oh, okay. He's a really, um, great, he's a really great guy. Also. Yeah. So he's, he's, he is a little famous because they've done like documentaries and all these right. things. Yeah. And so they've right. got, got that angle going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's, that promoters. is true. Mm -hmm. They're good. They are good promoters. Actually, I was at ITAP last week and they had a rep there from Dogfish Head and they were doing a bunch of crazy games and stuff. So, um, I don't know if I want to ask this or not, but I'm going to ask it. You can tell me now. Um, so you're... Often asked to speak at events. How many do you think you've spoken at over your career? Just a ballpark guess. Well, it, thousands. It would, it would depend <laughs> on what you would say is an event. <laughs> no, <laughs> you any know, public speaking. Yeah, core, well, you know, you know I've done a lot of, you know, Rotary Club, <laughs> club countless. Because I would just, you know, people would go, "Well, you will you come talk?" And of course, I always mm -hmm. thought. It'll help us sell beer, you know? Sure, and so yeah. I always said yes and always did. But um, yeah, no. And, you know, I've only, I've had a couple of mishaps in that whole arena. Well, and that was my next question, which <laughs> yeah. came from we were talking a couple weeks ago when we were at the Caddy Shack. And I think one of the stories you told resonated with Pearson Charbonneau, our commercial manager. So he said, You need to ask John if he's ever bombed. <laughs> oh, 
any oh, yeah. of his speeches. I did. The worst one was in St. Louis uh, in the uh, in the early days of the brewery. You know, the brewery was starting to do pretty good. Mm-hmm. And there was a big wholesaler event in St. Louis that were like, uh, I mean, there were probably 500 people at this right. event. That's a big event. And they were all yeah. beer people. And uh, we had, I had recently or hired this, our sales manager, a guy named Bob Sullivan. And Bob wanted, he, he got me to speak at this thing, right? And he's like, well, you can't just get up and speak. You have to have a speech. Which is what you do, though. You speak right. off the cuff. I, I mean, I've seen you speak a lot of times. You speak off the cuff. Right. So Bob actually wrote the speech for me. Oh. He wrote the speech. And I tried to memorize the speech. And I even tried to make it my own. And I got so nervous that... I mean, I'm supposed to talk for like 30 minutes and I get up in front of these <laughs> like 500 beer wholesalers and I literally, I was so nervous and I, and I tried, I started out trying to regurgitate this speech. <laughs> these words that were not your own. <laughs> yeah, words that were not my own and all of a sudden, and I had this. I became really uh, offensive in that I said, I basically was mad at the beer wholesaler or the beer industry because I hate, they, they didn't um, care about draft beer. You know, that's one really? of the things I realized early on is that we only had draft beer mm-hmm. and the, the, Back in the 40s and 50s when draft beer was a big part of all brewers because people went to taverns and they Mm -hmm. drank beer. Well, over the years, the big brewers all wanted to sell packaged beer. They made more money. The wholesaler made more money. The only person that made more money on draft beer was the retailer. But they never told the retailer that. And so craft brewers, when we started, we only had draft beer. The way we got our foot in the door because is it's we really said, expensive to bottle beer, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's prohibitive and, for a lot of small exactly. guys. Exactly. So all those costs get passed on. Mm-hmm. But in draft beer, it's the retailer because he's going to sell a draft beer for almost the same as he sells a bottle beer. Right. But his mm-hmm. cost is really low. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the big brewers, I'm convinced, in the boardrooms of Miller Coors or Miller and Coors and Pabst and Anheuser Busch, they went. We've got to, we don't want to sell more draft beer. So they, they wanted, and the reason they wanted it is the packaging. Hmm. It was branding. They wanted okay. bottles. Bottles of, and hands with labels on them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It was marketing. Sure. Interesting. And so they really didn't like draft beer. So they cut all their funding for draft uh, maintenance and cleaning. And the wholesalers were fine too. Because the wholesalers, you know, they made more money selling case beer. Right. And they didn't have to. Get the empty, they have to screw and send mm-hmm. it back to the brewery, you know, all the stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was really angry about that. And um, and so I just started like yelling at these guys about <laughs> the state of draft beer. You know? <laughs> and I went on and on for about five minutes, and then I realized that I was totally fuckered. <laughs> you know? And that I had totally screwed the thing, and there was no just all these guys were like. And it was right before lunch. So they were like ready for lunch, you know? And so I finally said something like, screw this. And just walked off. No. Walked off the podium. And 
afterwards, I went, I said to Bob, I saw him, and I go, was that as bad as I thought it was? Because it was worse. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was horrible. Needless to say, I've never been invited back to speak at an industry thing. No, I have actually. I'm sure you have. Yeah. But, um, but that was terrible. And that's when I went, okay, I'm never doing that. And I realized that, you know, for me, you know, if I have public speaking, were you there with, at the the thing right the other place that I screwed up the, uh, the northeast one no the the, uh, the, the lung gala lung? I was there hey, that was my first week on the job you always speak honestly you know you don't yeah. you don't pander very well no, um not good at that you're not but you also you don't mean to offend no either so so that was you know typically before I go to an event or I have public speaking I always like don't think I maybe start thinking about what I'm going to say two or three days before the event. Right. And then really, I'll tell you that the morning of when I take a shower in the morning, the day of the event, I decide what I'm going to say. <laughs> and, and it's usually like, these are the four things I want to sure. talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's the things. advice they give you. Yeah. Have yeah. your three or four points that if you lose track, you come back around yeah, and exactly. start on them again. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and that always just worked great for me. So I always did that, except for that lung association thing. I didn't, I didn't know no one. Well, I thought they were just going to give me this award. I didn't know yeah. I was even going to have to talk. <laughs> and I didn't know. And I then when I got in, I also had a few drinks. Yeah. You know, couple few, couple more than I should have. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, well, and it was a big, big event. I'd say thousand plus yeah. in that room. Yeah, that exactly. was a big guy. Yeah. And I was like, well, they're not going to ask me. You know, I don't know what this is even about. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know what it was about. <laughs> really. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what, the, you know, and I thought, a couple of times I said to myself, well, they won't ask me first. Somebody will speak before me and they'll, and then I'll figure out what I'll sure. have to say, what mm-hmm. I should say. Because I had no idea what, I'm like, you should at least know what you're going to say. So sure enough, they I'm first. <laughs> I'm first. I'm like, as I'm walking up there, I'm like, oh my God. You know, I'm kind of screwed because I don't, I don't even know what this thing is about. <laughs> and you want to feel things out too. If you hear yeah, one, if exactly. you hear one speech, you can yeah, tailor it. figure it out. So anyway, I get up there and I don't know what I said. It wasn't terrible until I, I tell this story about my mother. I'm thinking, gotta say something. Lung cancer. Oh, I know about lung cancer, right? Yeah. Because your mom. Yeah, my mom had lung cancer. Right. And she died of it. And, of course, I said, and she always said this. She said, I deserve it. You know, I she deserve said, it. I deserve it. I, I smoked, smoked my whole I life. Knew it. Yeah. I smoked my whole life. I knew it. You know, I mean, she did finally quit when she was 62 when she mm-hmm. got diagnosed with lung cancer and then quit smoking and went to be 86. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So she did. And then she took up yoga and never smoked again. And, but that's what killed her. She died of cancer. Sure. cancer right. Cancer. But um, and of course, the next person to come up is this lawyer who, uh, you know, goes after the tobacco companies. Right. And he goes, well, my father died of lung cancer, but he didn't deserve it. Yeah. I don't you know. know. He, was, I, he was pounding on the podium a yeah. little bit, too. He was, yeah, so he, was, he, yeah. was he didn't like me very much because I was like... <laughs> You know, ruining his whole sh- his whole show. You know, <laughs> right. well, and I that it was, wasn't terrible. It, I think it, I said a few funny things, and then you I did, yeah. And, and 
for those in the room that probably knew you, they probably laughed. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's I had I had it was a little a hard bit. Crowd. Everybody was eating. And it, it was, was kind of a hard crowd. It was yeah. a big crowd too, and everybody was talking yeah. at their tables. And right. that's I'd had a little bit too much wine because I was nervous. Yeah, because it was you, you and your, you and Ann, your wife, and Jeff Crumb, his yeah. wife, and and Mike, and first week on the job, and I laughed so hard that I was crying, <laughs> you know, which is very inappropriate. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it yeah. was it was so um, that didn't bother me too much. Yeah, that first one, that first one was terrible. I mean, <laughs> that one, that's just a still, not knowing your audience, yeah, sort of thing, you know, yeah, where you didn't yeah. know what they wanted you to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So we have to ask you about your new hair. Okay. So for years. It's my old hair. Okay. So maybe since those are you know, yeah. seeing pictures of you or met you, almost always had white spiky hair, as long as I can remember. Now you have long flowing locks. <laughs> well, you know, I always I uh yeah, I do. I'm kinda I you know, I let my hair grow up kinda long, really long and shaggy. And then I went to the to my uh, the woman that cuts my hair, and I said, gosh, i got to add my wife's afternoon, i got to get my hair cut. <laughs> and she goes, well, I really like it long. And and she said, how about if I just trim it up long? And so she did. And so I've done that for like a couple rounds now. So, but I think I'm it's not a good trying look. to make a statement or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a big change, though. I do. Yeah. At least I have some hair. Which That's is true. Yeah. I'm grateful for yeah. the hair you have. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So last question, um, other than the Ripple Boulevard, what is next for you? And do you have anything really cool going on within Kansas City that you're excited about? You know, I'm, you know, I'm excited about, um, you know, Ripple is my most, you know, I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. And I wish I was even more involved than I am. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm trying to basically uh, kind of slow down a little bit. Are you? Well, you know, or do, I figure, you know, I was just thinking about it. My dad died when he was 79. I'm 65 mm-hmm. this year. That gives me 14 years if I live that long. And just how I want to live that time, you know, mm-hmm. what I want to do. And I'm really, um, you know, I have to stay busy. Mm-hmm. But I really, you know, I'm sort of a, become a businessman. Mm-hmm because of the brewery and everything. But what I really like is I like to make things. And that's what I've really done my whole life. And I think that's where I want to get back to. So, you know, I've got a wood shop now down at the farm and I'm, you know, redoing the, the cabin and making stuff and building stuff. And, and I really like that. And <clears throat> I find that, you know, I get involved in that all day. And of course I'm not on my phone and, right getting all this stuff. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, damn it. Now I got to look at my phone and catch up on what's going on in the world and yeah. do all this stuff. And I like that, but, um, I want to slowly mm-hmm. become more, um, in my own head, mm-hmm. Sure. you know, and I'm, you know, I might even start painting or something again. I mean, I just kind of want to, you know, use the rest of the time, um, thinking about stuff sure, yeah, and enjoying life and doing those things. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to stay healthy too. I try to keep my drinking to a minimum. Right. And you work out now. And I work yeah. out. Yep. And so I'm trying to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have one less garden now after my son got married because I, 
I don't know if you saw, but the, it's all grass down in there, which so, is good. Right. I'm good with that because I have all the farm business down there to take care of. Right. So it was starting to weigh on me actually a little bit. But yeah, I'm really hopeful and optimistic about Ripple. Mm -hmm. You know, I really think we got a great crew. And, and I think, you know, I'm really anxious to hopefully figure out how we can do something with momentum and get, sure. you know, get a little bit bigger, more people doing the right things, right? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. That's what we need. And, and I think. I think we will be successful. Mm -hmm. I, I think, think it's just going to take some time. Right. It's obvious why Boulevard Brewing Company is one of Kansas City's most loved businesses, and there's no doubt as to why John is so passionate about sustainability. We're so fortunate to have such an awesome entrepreneur in Kansas City and as a part of the Ripple team. You can find the websites for Boulevard Brewing Company and Ripple Glass in the show notes. So check it out and head to Boulevard Beer Hall to enjoy some local craft beers. If you need help finding the show notes in Apple Podcasts, just swipe up from the player screen or you can always go to raise.rippleglass.com slash three for episode three, where you can find the links and notes on our guest. This podcast is made possible by Ripple Glass, Kansas City's hometown glass recycler. If you live in Kansas City, you probably have seen one of our big purple bins around town. That's where you can drop off all of your glass bottles and jars so we can save them from the landfill and keep Kansas City beautiful. If you're already a glass recycler, thank you. You are awesome. And if you haven't started recycling your glass yet, check out rippleglass.com, put in your zip code, and find all the bins closest to you. Next week, we'll be joined by James and Lindsay Lowry, the husband and wife team of Casey Wineworks, the first full-scale production winery to establish in the Kansas City Crossroads Arts District. We're going to find out how making wine runs in their family and why they chose the Crossroads for their tasting room and production facility. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and if you love Kansas City culture as much as we do, drop us a line at info at rippleglass.com and tell us who we should spotlight in a future episode.